second episode of Minority of One podcast. I want to, before we get into the main topics, and there's one, there's going to be one predominant topic that we're going to be talking about today, namely the musical Hamilton and sort of what my thoughts on it are as a historian and as a fan of theater. But there's going to be some other major topics that we get into. But I wanted to talk first about just uh, expressing my condolences for just the horrific shooting that happened in Las Vegas recently. It's difficult for me to state just how horrific I find this event. I, you know, I don't want my words to sound hollow, but this is just absolutely reprehensible. And I think it's made even more frightening by the fact that as of the time when I'm recording this podcast, we don't really know why the shooting even happened. But I, I'm not going to talk too much about the shooting right now because I, I don't know that how much I can say about it right now that hasn't already been said. That there have been a lot of calls I know for increased gun control in reaction to the shooting, and I, I can pretty much guarantee you that I'll be talking about gun control in future episodes of my podcast. But I think now is not the best time for that. So. I just want to again express how horrified I am by what happened in Las Vegas, and I want to kind of provide you with a quote from Rosa Parks that I think is very fitting here. Rosa Parks once said, I hope to someday see an end to the conditions in our country that would make people want to hurt others. So for the first main topic that I want to get into today, Donald Trump has demonstrated that he is a narcissist. Of course, there's a a difficulty in framing the issue that way because to suggest that he has demonstrated himself to be a narcissist would imply that we didn't already know about that. But I think that one of the primary examples of just what a self-absorbed, arrogant, unbelievable individual Donald Trump is can be seen in his recent reaction to first the protests by figures in the NFL, and on the other hand, to horrific events in Puerto Rico. So, starting last year with Colin Kaepernick, we have increasingly seen uh, NFL players first sitting, then kneeling during the national anthem. Now, I am not for or against standing during the national anthem. I had always done it because it just, at that moment in time, I didn't want to deal with the sort of pushback that I would get for not standing. But on the flip side, the National Anthem has no special place in my heart. It was a song that was written by a slave master, Francis Scott Key, who ruthlessly prosecuted abolitionists and slaves when they, in his mind, stepped out of line. The song is actually incredibly bloodthirsty and probably racist, what we usually hear is the most innocuous portion of it. We, you know, the what we hear played is not the full national anthem. And of course, like the Pledge of Allegiance, it's essentially a homily to the United States government. So I, I am not at all protective of the national anthem. So I, I certainly didn't have a problem with what Colin Kaepernick and eventually other players were doing. I have increasingly become supportive of it 
for a couple of reasons. First of all, because we really do have a terrible problem of racism in this country. And I think that when people get more upset about a black player kneeling during the national anthem than they do about a black man being shot by police because they thought he was a bank robber which he or a store robber which, which he wasn't and because he had a legally acquired firearm and was actually trying to comply with the cop. Now when people get more upset about the kneeling than about what was basically second degree murder, I think that shows that many Americans have incredibly skewed priorities. And the other reason that my views have kind of shifted on this is it's been just, I found this another kind of ridiculous double standard in selective outrage which is that you have a large portion of people who are fine with the Confederate flag, or at least see it as a complex issue, but are just outraged when players don't stand for a song because they say it's unpatriotic. Now the Confederacy, in addition to being established to protect slavery, the Confederacy, of course, was established by seceding from the United States. Obviously we know why they seceded, it was to protect slavery. However, for the purposes of patriotism, there is also the fact that they did break away from the United States, and in order to protect slavery, they engaged in a war that claimed the lives of hundreds of thousands of American soldiers. Colin Kaepernick has killed no American soldiers, neither have any of the other players on the NFL that are protesting. And in fact, so Colin Kaepernick understandably got some criticism for wearing what I believe was a Fidel Castro t-shirt. I mean, it was some sort of um, article of clothing or something with Fidel Castro on it. And he got a lot of criticism for that because of Castro's human rights violations. And I think that that's a valid critique. Of course, it's kind of ironic coming from people who would not object to, for example, a Thomas Jefferson t-shirt, even though Thomas Jefferson was a slaveholder. And we're going to be talking a lot more about that later in this podcast. There is certainly a pretty big kind of, I guess you might say, double standard here because, of course, in addition to the fact that people are being selectively outraged about Colin Kaepernick's protest, if you look at that, if you look at the fact that he praises Fidel Castro, okay, I disagree with that. Fidel Castro was not a good guy. He did horrible things to people in Cuba. Nonetheless, if you want to talk about patriotism, Fidel Castro did not kill hundreds of thousands of American soldiers like the Confederacy did. And so it becomes very difficult to take these criticisms seriously when many of the people that are making them are completely hypocritical about it. Now that said, not everyone who objects to the national anthem protests is hypocritical or racist. There are some people who, for example, do not support the Confederate flag, they do not retrospectively side with the Confederacy, and they have criticized the national anthem protests without personally attacking the players, making racist remarks, trying to have them fired, etc. I think one of the examples of that would be Ruth Bader Ginsburg, although to her credit, she eventually kind of walked back her statement. Another, another example would be Nate Boyer, David Brooks. You could actually, you could argue Barack Obama fall into that category. But many of the people, 
probably the majority of the people, almost certainly the majority, who are criticizing these protests are doing so in a manner that is making them come across as extremely racist, probably because that's what they are. Now in jumps Donald Trump into the fray. Now you would think that a guy whose campaign slogan was, make America great again, implying that America is not currently great, wouldn't be so freaked out about someone not being ultra patriotic. But of course you would be wrong. So Donald Trump, as most of you have probably already heard, called for players to be fired if they did not stand up during the national anthem. Now, from a freedom of speech standpoint, Donald Trump has called for blatant govern government censorship before. For example, for banning flag burning, for making it easier to sue journalists. Firing a player, if a private company fires an employee for political views, that is not in and of itself censorship. Now, I would disagree with it under most circumstances, and I would certainly disagree with it if the NFL did it for these players. But that is not in and of itself censorship because we are dealing with a private corporation and not the government. And censorship is usually understood as only, rest only restricting the actions of the government. Because, for example, if you say that private employers are subject to the same um, Free speech, free speech laws as the government is, or I should say restrictions on, on what they can do with free speech, then you end up in a situation where, for example, somebody insults their boss on Facebook and can't be fired because that would be considered censorship. Now, I'm, the point I'm making here is that we do allow employers to fire employees for making statements that the government would have no right to censor. Nonetheless, and, and again, I would completely disagree if these players were fired for not standing during a national anthem. I think that would be a terrible idea by the NFL, and I think they would deserve every bit of backlash they got if they did that. I'm actually proud of the fact that the NFL is handling these protests pretty well as far as showing solidarity with the players and not punishing them. Now that being said, but I just want to kind of get that disclaimer out of the way so that people didn't say, don't say, oh, well, Trump's not advocating censorship because it's just a private employer. Here's the thing. I don't want to live in a country where the president is trying to get people fired, trying to basically go to their bosses and say, you need to fire this person for protesting. And I would think that that's not a country that most Americans want to live in. I would think that a conservative American would not want to have the next president, if that president was a Democrat, telling their boss that they should be fired from their jobs for protesting the Affordable Care Act. That's just a complete overstepping of the presidential boundaries, in my opinion. There's actually been some controversy, and I haven't looked into this enough to really form an opinion on this, but there's been some controversy as to whether or not Trump's statements are in fact illegal. Because there are laws about public officials trying to interfere with the employment of people in private corporations based on political views. So there, there is a possibility that Trump did break the law by trying to sort of insert himself into a private corporation and get people fired for not standing for the national anthem. I'm not sure if he broke the law though, I just know that his behavior has come across as narcissistic, racist, and just incredibly thin-skinned. And hypocritical, of course, because he says, make America great again, and implies that America is not great. Now, right around the time that these protests were really getting ratcheted up, Puerto Rico was horribly damaged by hurricanes. 
And so that entire weekend, Trump tweeted about Puerto Rico barely, if at all, while constantly tweeting about what an outrage it was that these players were protesting and how they should be fired. Here's a crazy idea, Donald. If you want people to be ultra-patriotic, don't try to get them fired from their jobs for protesting and then twiddle your thumbs while a part of the United States is ravaged by hurricanes. So Trump finally seems to be sending some aid to Puerto Rico, but it was only after massive public outrage and massive pressure to do his job and get off his dang Twitter. So that's all I'm gonna say about that right now. We have some unfortunate developments lately with LGBT rights, as well as some cause for hope. So Mississippi passed a right to discriminate law that has been heavily challenged in the courts, and it's sort of the boilerplate thing about private individuals and government employees having a right to discriminate based on sexual orientation or gender identity. Now, I talked about the religious freedom aspect of this in my last podcast, but I want to talk about the sort of libertarian aspect of it, because these states, as did Indiana, as did Georgia when they proposed legislation like this, as did Arizona when they were trying to pass this legislation, etc., they couched in libertarian terms about how it's just about limited government and individual freedom. That, of course, is hilarious coming from Mississippi, because let's review some of their past examples of individual freedom when it comes to gay rights. And of course, I'm being sarcastic here. So Mississippi was one of a number of states that had sodomy laws still in place, laws that essentially amounted to a ban on gay men having sex with each other. Mississippi had those laws in the books until the Supreme Court intervened in 2003. Mississippi also banned same-sex marriage until the federal courts intervened. I believe until the Supreme Court struck down the remaining same-sex marriage bans in 2015. But in any case, Mississippi did not voluntarily legalize same-sex marriage, nor is there any reason to think that they would have done it anytime soon. Mississippi also had one of the strictest gay adoption bans in place until the feds intervened. So what we have seen with Mississippi is that they are perfectly fine to use the state as a hammer when it comes to oppressing gay Americans, transgender Americans, etc., as well as black Americans, women, Native Americans. Basically, Mississippi loves big government. The idea that the South is somehow anti-big government, especially states like Mississippi, is incredibly fallacious. And I'm just going to sort of play a little clip that it came from a 1965 song, but I think that it is still very relevant to the current issues that we are experiencing with the disgusting actions of the state of Mississippi. Here's to the state of Mississippi For underneath her borders the devil draws no line If you drag her muddy rivers nameless bodies you will find Oh, the fat trees of the forest have hit a thousand crimes. The calendar's lying when it reads the present time. Oh, here's to the land you've torn out the heart of. 
yourself another country to be part of. So that, of course, is Phil Ox, a 1960s folk singer, sadly deceased. But that sort of sums up how Mississippi has acted for the majority of American history. Now, don't get me wrong. Not everyone in Mississippi shares those attitudes. There are definitely good, fair-minded people in Mississippi. But if you look at it in the aggregate, it has tended to be a bastion of reactionary civil rights laws and a bastion of this old American practice of using government to oppress people until the momentum shifts against you and then suddenly acting libertarian. Now, in other gay rights news, Gallup recently did a poll about how many Americans think that homosexuality should still be illegal. Now, it's funny because you, you hear a lot of the time that really social conservatives just want to be left alone. And of course, that is not borne out by the general political reality of America, nor is it borne out by this poll. Because what we find in this poll is that 23% of Americans think that homosexuality should be illegal. We are not talking about 0.23%. We are talking about 23%, almost a quarter, in 2017. Seriously, that is significant. So don't let anybody think, don't let anybody try to make you think that these gay rights issues in the United States are already won and that it's really only in other countries that gay people are at risk of persecution. There is still a great deal of danger for gay people in the United States, and that's why we have to be vigilant. But since we're talking about other countries, the United States is not good on gay rights. In fact, sometimes it's pretty bad. Other countries, some other countries, many other countries are better, some of them are worse when it comes to the issue of gay rights. Some countries, like Saudi Arabia and Iran, have the death penalty for homosexuality. And I bring this up because there was a UN resolution recently that essentially the resolution denounced the use of the death penalty by certain governments for quote-unquote crimes such as homosexuality. Now, of course, Saudi Arabia, which is a powerful player in the UN and a powerful player in the world economy because of all of its oil and because of its sort of political importance in the Middle East. Saudi Arabia, of course, vehemently opposed this resolution. Now, Donald Trump, when he ran, claimed that he would defend LGBT Americans against Islamic extremists. And many people were saying, well, the issues are basically solved in the U.S., and the real danger now is coming from radical Muslims, so gay people should vote for Trump because he'll protect them. So, obviously, Trump took this opportunity to fully support the, the resolution and stand against countries like Saudi Arabia. Oh, no, wait, that's not what happened. Donald Trump's United States actually, or I should say the United States under Donald Trump, with Ambassador Nikki Haley, voted against this resolution and stood with totalitarian theocracies such as Saudi Arabia. So if anyone somehow still thinks that Donald Trump is standing up for LGBT Americans against Islamic terrorism or against Islamic extremism or otherwise, I hope that this will somehow bring them back to reality. But if they haven't already woken up to that reality, I don't know what else 
I don't know what could wake them up to that. Now, speaking of Saudi Arabia, they did recently make some progress on women finally being able to drive. What year is it again? I anyhow, women now finally, after having fought tooth and nail, have the right to drive in Saudi Arabia. I hate to give Saudi Arabia credit for, after great public pressure, finally getting around to granting a basic human right that most other countries recognize. But Saudi Arabia, through the courageous efforts of activists, finally did the right thing on this issue. Now, granted, Saudi Arabia is still a bad place for women to live. They still, for example, this is just one example, um, I am not saying that this is the only issue for Saudi Arabian women, but just one example is the fact that women in Saudi Arabia cannot go out in public unveiled. And I honestly, you know, um, Linda Sarsour, who is a self-described Muslim feminist, is kind of been get she's kind of been getting more press lately. She was one of the organizers of the Women's March, which I, I was happy to I was happy to attend a Women's March in Atlanta. I'm very proud of that. I would do it again ten times out of ten. But Linda Sarsour was one of the organizers. And unfortunately, if you look back at some of her old tweets, she had actually, I mean, you can Google Linda Sarsour Saudi Arabia. The tweets may have been deleted now, but there's still records of them online. And she basically played off these atrocities in Saudi Arabia, such as women not being able to drive, in, uh, such as women not being able to go out unveiled in public. She sort of played this off as no big deal because, well, Saudi Arabia has paid maternity leave. And there have been attempts to defend her tweets and talk about them being misunderstood, but there's really no way of getting away from the fact that Linda Sarsour clearly doesn't take these issues seriously and clearly has a reluctance, at least in certain cases, to criticize sexism in Islam. Now, granted, everyone makes stupid statements on Twitter, and everyone says things that they later realize were wrong, but until she really apologizes for these statements and really acknowledges why they were so inappropriate and problematic and offensive, I just I don't think that she can be taken seriously as a feminist leader. That may be the most incendiary part of my podcast today, but I do stand by that. Now we get to the portion of the podcast that is our main event and probably what people are most excited about for the most part, and that is my review of the musical Hamilton. Now, I remember when this musical came out a couple years ago, people started talking about it almost immediately, and it's widely agreed upon that actually it was originally going to be Hamilton who was going to share the $10 bill with the late, great Harriet Tubman, because Alexander Hamilton is not one of the more well-known founding fathers to the general public. There is no sort of story, with, although in George Washington's case, the story is false. Ben Franklin's case, I'm honestly, I've heard it so many times, I'm a little unclear if this Ben Franklin story is true. Um, I feel a little bit of an affront to my historian's pride that I don't know if the story of Ben Franklin to the kite is true. I would have to look that up. I've honestly spent more time studying Ben Franklin's political views. But in any case, I digress. With guys like Washington and Franklin, we have stories about them that are a big part of the public mindset. There really is nothing like that with Alexander Hamilton, despite what a historically significant figure he was. If you ask the average American who Alexander Hamilton was, 
they'll probably say something along the lines of, oh, I heard about him in history class. Wasn't he one of the founding fathers? But that's really about it. I would say that Hamilton probably comes in at best as probably behind, definitely behind Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Benjamin Franklin, and John Adams as far as founding fathers that people remember. So, I mean, he at, at best is probably the sixth most well-known founding father. And uh, when we're talking about historical figures known to the general public, the sixth most well-known spot is usually for someone that not a lot of people know much about. And I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to be intellectually elitist because there are plenty of things with, say, math and science that I know very little about and most members of the general public know very little about. So I'm not trying to hold myself above the general public as some sort of intellectual superior. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just saying that Alexander Hamilton is not that well-known to the general public. But a lot of people believe that this musical effectively saved Hamilton's spot as the sole historical figure on the $10 bill. Now, pretty much when, when I, you know, I immediately started hearing about this musical from other people in the historical community and other people who, like me, are fans of musical theater. Now, unlike a lot of other people, I didn't listen to the soundtrack because I knew that one of these days I would hopefully get to see the musical on stage, and I wanted the songs to be as fresh and new as possible when I went to see it. So now I'm going to talk about it both from sort of an artistic standpoint and from a historian standpoint, because from an artistic standpoint, it just hits it out of the park. It's a... It's a home run. I can't believe I'm using baseball analogies. I know very little about baseball. I'm pretty sure, though, that a home run is a good thing. But that being said, from a historian standpoint, it's more mixed. I have kind of mixed feelings, and it's difficult to say that it's overwhelmingly good or overwhelmingly bad, historically speaking. But we'll get into that. So artistically, the songs, and I know that this is subjective, but in my opinion, the songs are amazing. I first became familiar with Lin-Manuel Miranda actually through the Disney cartoon Moana. I also love animation. And Moana was one of the few Disney cartoons where it was a musical that I liked all the songs in. Or I should say I loved all the songs. There, with, with most Disney musicals, there are maybe three songs that I really enjoy that I listen to a bunch, and then the other ones I just sort of can take them or leave them. Moana, I loved all the songs, and Lin-Manuel Miranda was doing the songs for that movie, and you can sort of see some stylistic similarities in the music in Moana and the music in Hamilton. For example, the song that Dwayne Johnson sings in Moana called You're Welcome has a lot of, uh, or at least I think it has some stylistic similarities with What Did I Miss, a song that Thomas Jefferson sings in, uh, in Hamilton. And in both, in both musicals, you know, in Moana, they're introducing the character of Maui with that song, Dwayne Johnson's character. And he's sort of this cocky, you know, kind of a bit of a dick. Um, and then in... Hamilton, Jefferson is being introduced as a cocky dick. And so there, there's the context of the song and the style have some major similarities. Another example is there's a song in Moana, and I'm pretty sure it's called I Am Moana, but it's a song that she sings near the end of the film. 
And there, I think there are some stylistic similarities between that and the song Hurricane in Moana. Uh, oh, no, sorry, the song Hurricane in Hamilton. I'm, I, I can keep them straight in my head. I just sometimes accidentally say one name when I mean the other. You're going to have to deal with that. So, yeah, and the thing about Hamilton is, as is the case with Moana, and I think it's because Lin-Manuel Miranda is just a musical genius, I pretty much love all the songs in Hamilton. There's one or two that, I, that I'm so-so about, but pretty much I just love all of them. And for a musical that it's, oh, it's about two and a half hours, and there's basically no dialogue. You know, it's not like Wicked or Book of Mormon where there's a lot of dialogue mixed in with a lot of songs. Hamilton is basically all singing. And I used to think I didn't like stage shows like that. And I think it was because I uh, saw a performance by an opera company that came to the middle school I was at. And I'm just like, okay, I really don't like this. There, there needs to be some dialogue. But apparently, it if the story is good enough and the music is good enough, I can really enjoy it. The take home from th that part, from uh, this part of the podcast is that the music in Hamilton is great. Now, from a plot standpoint, it's also really well done. You get introduced to Hamilton as sort of this young, wet-behind-the-ears uh, up-and-comer who is really eager to prove himself. And they get into kind of his background about how he had a fairly hard-scrabble background growing up in the West Indies. His father deserted the family. His mother died. And actually, it's an interesting thing. I don't think they mentioned this in the musical, but Hamilton actually, like a lot of people from poverty-stricken situations, Hamilton's date of birth has never been authenticated. Some historians argue that it was 1755, and other historians argue that it was 1757 because there are contradictions between some of the stuff that Hamilton said and some of the stuff that we find on probate records. And so they really kind of play up the fact that Hamilton had a very hard early life and had to really kind of fight tooth and nail for what he got. And then he also gets introduced to Aaron Burr as a young man. And so you kind of see this sort of budding friendship, but also building tension between the two men as they get older and their paths both keep crossing. And even though they're on the same side in the Revolutionary War, they also have sort of a rivalry, but there's also respect that the respect gradually sort of melts away and they just have more and more animosity toward each other. There's also um, a really interesting sort of love triangle between Hamilton, his wife, and one of her sisters. Now, the love triangle, a lot of historians have argued, and I tend to agree with them, even though I haven't heavily researched this aspect of Hamilton's life. Historians largely believe that this love triangle was mostly fabricated in, in the, for the musical. But just from a plot standpoint, it, it's really well done. And just the, the way the characters bounce off of each other is really good. And the acting is really good. You know, it's funny... Um, so people who are friends with me or who have read a lot of my writing or, or former teachers, most of them are going to know that I really dislike Thomas Jefferson. I am not a big fan of the Founding Fathers in general, but I really just have a pretty strong level of antipathy, or I guess you could say animus, for Thomas Jefferson. I don't hate him because I don't think it's appropriate, like I don't think it's right to hate any human being or, or certainly not right to hate animals either. Um, you know how I feel about animals, but actually you probably don't, but I'm a big animal lover. But the thing with Jefferson is that 
with Jefferson, you have a lifelong slaveholder who George Washington gets way too much credit for the fact that he freed his slaves in his will, but at least he did include that clause in his will that they would be eventually freed. Jefferson didn't even do that. And the reason he didn't do that, or at least one of there, you know, two of the big reasons, because people will bring up the fact, people bring up, you know, a lot of reasons that he supposedly didn't free his slaves, but two of the big reasons that have been proven are that he felt, first of all, that if black people were interacting with white people, basically in an integrated setting, that they might start marrying and having kids. And that would degrade the white race, and we couldn't have that. And I don't, we don't need to speculate about this, because that is actually what Jefferson told a young neighbor named Edward Coles in a letter, because Coles wanted Jefferson's help in freeing his, by his, I mean, Coles slaves, and then sort of resettling them in an area where they could live as free people. And, and Coles really respected Jefferson and thought Jefferson could help him with that. And Jefferson tried to talk him out of it, and one of the reasons he used was that interracial relationships were really bad and they could happen if slaves were free and, quote, amalgamated with white people. And then another reason that Jefferson never freed most of his slaves is that he made the, Kim he made the Kardashians look like ascetics. He spent and spent and spent. If you read some of the work by guys like Paul Finkelman and Gary Wills, you'll find that... There's just a staggering, there was a staggering amount of buying that Jefferson was doing, particularly when he was coming home from Paris. And this caused, or at least exacerbated, massive amounts of debts. And so, as a result of that, or largely as a result of that, he felt that he couldn't free his slaves. But as Paul Finkelman points out, had emancipating his slaves been a priority for him, he could have easily cut back on spending because he was spending vastly more than any human being needed to be spending. And actually, there's, um, there's a lot of argument that Jefferson was basically just using the debt thing as an excuse and that he really wanted to have slaves largely because they would support his very lavish lifestyle. But here's the funny thing about Hamilton. So the musical of Hamilton acknowledges pretty well that Jefferson was a hypocritical slave owner. And in fact, there's a... Uh, there's a song where they do a rap battle in the cabinet where they actually, they allude to this and there's a really great, really great lyric about it. So there, of course, we have Hamilton calling out Jefferson for his hypocrisy on slaveholding and kind of his attempts to fashion himself as a populist, despite the fact that he is a very wealthy man who is living off of the unwilling labor of other human beings. Now we'll get to why, from a historical standpoint, the musical is spot on about Jefferson, but kind of gets Hamilton wrong. But for the time being, having sort of gotten out of the way why I dislike Jefferson so much, you might be surprised to know that Jefferson is actually one of my favorite characters in this musical. Now the reason for that kind of goes back to what a well-done musical this is. So I, for a long time, actually especially more so as an adult than as a kid, but I love hammy cartoon villains. 
I did not want one of them to become president, but I love hammy cartoon villains. And that's effectively what they do with Jefferson in this musical. When he first comes on stage, the kind of the narrator of the song, because he comes on at the beginning of the second act, and the narrator of the song builds him up, you know, and by the time, by the time he actually came on stage, the crowd was just going crazy. And I think a lot of that is that the actor that played him is, a pre is pretty well known in the theater community. But nonetheless, this particular actor, uh, I believe his name was James Monroe Iglehart. I believe I'm getting this right. It's an unusual name, but I believe I got it right. And he just hams it up so much with this character. Like, he really needs some eggs to go with all that ham. And I love it. He is wearing just the flashiest clothing imaginable. And he just, you can tell he is loving every minute of that performance. And it's funny because I'd heard that the, uh, in the original stage musical of Aladdin that they've been doing in New York for the last few years, that the guy who played the genie had gone on to play someone in Hamilton. And I had no idea who, who he was playing until Jefferson came on stage. And then I was like, okay, that's got to be the guy that played the genie. Because not only is he such a ham, but he also just, you can easily picture him playing a genie. So yeah, I mean, the musical made me like Thomas Jefferson as a character. Didn't change my historical opinion, but it made me like the character. That's an achievement. There's even this one part where, and I believe it's Jefferson, it, it's a little hard to keep track of what each character is doing in some of the musical numbers, but there's a, there's a scene when Hamilton kind of, let's say, drops his wiener in the campfire a little bit, and uh, to kind of use the sort of strong PG version of that expression. But Hamilton screws up by trying to head off, almost preemptively head off corruption rumors that haven't really become widespread yet by admitting, no, I didn't break the law and engage in illegal corrupt behavior. I just paid out of pocket to give this guy hush money because I slept with his wife. That's effectively what Hamilton does. And so he writes a pamphlet about it and torpedoes his political career. And that's based on reality. But there's the, during the, during the song, the Reynolds pamphlet, which is one of my favorite songs, and we'll get to what my absolute favorite song in there is, but in the Reynolds pamphlet song, Jefferson is effectively, he's distributing the pamphlet to people and singing gleefully about how Hamilton's never going to be president. Um, but he's literally, the best way I can describe it is if you ever see where somebody is showering people with money, uh, you can't see me doing the hand signals, but where they've got money and they've got it in one hand and they're using the other hand to just sort of flick it flick it into the crowd that's essentially what he's doing with the pamphlet and it's awesome uh <laughs> yeah i can't say enough good things about the acting in this musical my all-out favorite song though is is wait for it and that's a song that aaron burr who's one of the primary antagonists besides jefferson i wouldn't really call him a villain because he's very sympathetic and very multi-layered character but he sings this song called Wait For It that is sort of, it gives you the best glimpse into his character. Um, and he's singing about, you know, how he, you know, his family's all gone. He hasn't had the level of success that he wants. He's got kind of a family legacy he's trying to live up to. He has a woman that he's in love with, but her husband is, well, first of all, she's got a husband who's still alive, and also he's a British officer. Um, and... At one point, he says something like, he's on the British side. He says, talking about uh, this British officer, Burr says something like, 
He's on the British side of Georgia. He's trying to keep the colonies in line. Well, he can have Theodo he can have all of Georgia. Theodosia, she's mine. And it's kind of a diss on Georgia, but <laughs> I don't care because I make fun of Georgia a lot too. But it's just the most beautiful song. It'll probably make you choke up by the end. And I think for anyone who, whether it's in relationships or careers or just other aspects of life, I think anyone who hasn't been as successful as they wanted and kind of, you know, got to a point in life and they weren't, they hadn't achieved as much as they pictured themselves achieving by that point. I think anyone in that position or who's ever been in that position is going to relate to this song. And that's my favorite song in the musical. So now we kind of talk about, I'm going to talk about it from a historian standpoint. So on the one hand, I think the best thing about this musical is actually, or one of the best things is that it probably has done more than almost any other film, book, stage show, etc., to get people interested in American history. I don't remember the last time people were talking this much about historical figures. And so I hope, and I may be naive here, but I hope that it will inspire more people to sort of read up and do more research on these historical figures and try to learn more about them and learn about how events actually happen. And I will say this musical was educational. And I think it's going to be especially educational for people who maybe aren't, aren't that into history. I mean, there are things I learned from this musical that I was not aware of especially because I hadn't, I hadn't studied as much about the personal lives besides their involvement in the slavery issue of some of these founders like Hamilton. So there were definitely things about Hamilton and Burr's personal lives that I was not as aware of. And it's also, I think one of the most interesting things I learned is it's a very random tidbit, but when I was in high school, we had to uh, read this sermon by a Puritan minister named Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it's essentially a very repetitive, kind of sadistic sermon where Edwards is warning everyone about the need to escape their impending doom of eternal fire. Now, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because Edwards was a staunch Calvinist, and Calvinists believe that you are predestined to be saved or damned for all time. So the whole idea of warning people, trying to warn people about the need to escape something that has already been preordained doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but there it is. Um, and so I read, the, I had first heard of Edwards actually back in 2005 when I was sort of researching sort of the history of the debate over eternal hell and doing a little bit of theological research. And then I read the, the sermon, I think in 2007. So I had known about Edwards for 12 years and I had known about Hamilton for about, I had known about Hamilton and Burr for about 12 years. What I didn't realize is that Aaron Burr was actually Jonathan Edwards' grandson. And they have a little reference to that in this, and I'm pretty sure I said Burr, but I just want to make it clear. It was Burr who was Edwards' grandson, not Hamilton. Because I definitely am never going to live it down if I accidentally say that Hamilton was the grandson of Jonathan Edwards. In any case, during that great Wait For It song, Aaron Burr sings, My grandfather was a fire and brimstone preacher. And it turns out he's referring to Jonathan Edwards. And so it was funny because I had known about Burr and I had known about Edwards for both about a dozen years, and I had never made the connection that they were related. And you, you got to wonder, apparently, you know, Burr was not only involved with a married woman before her husband died, and after he died, he uh, Burr married her um, and became her second husband. But Burr was in general, uh, shall we say, 
a lover of the company of women. And I don't just mean intellectual company. <laughs> so you have to wonder how his grandfather would have felt about the way in which his grandson turned out. But in any case, it's a very educational musical, and I think it's going to get people thinking about some of these historical issues more. At least I hope so. Now, I also think that it has a very interesting theme about immigration, because they frequently reference that Hamilton is an immigrant. They really play that uh, fact up. And many of the characters make derogatory comments about it. Hamilton mentions it when he's talking about how the odds are sort of against him and how he's really struggling to succeed. And then there's a line where Hamilton and the French uh, revolutionary Marquis de Lafayette, who helped the Americans during the Revolutionary War, he and Lafayette both sing, immigrants, we get the job done. And so I like, you know, I especially, I think now as much as ever, it's really important to remind people about the role that immigrants have played in American history. And it is funny to think about the fact that guys like Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Paine, who I actually, Thomas Paine is one of my favorite founding fathers. He's one of the few that I really like and respect. But Thomas Paine was born in Thetford, England. So you think about guys like Hamilton and Paine, who probably, that there's some, I think it's, it's ambiguous because at the time that they were born, there was no United States. So it's possible they would have been grandfathered in, but it's not entirely clear that they would have been eligible to run for president. And that's kind of crazy to think about given the role that they played in the foundation of the country. And again, you, know, you could argue that, well, they were all born British, you know, all the founding fathers are, were born British subjects. So you could argue that the natural born citizen clause wasn't retroactive and didn't apply to people who were born before the Constitution or before the United States was founded, but it's definitely ambiguous. Um, and I think that Lin-Manuel Miranda does a great public service by sort of uh, introducing that or making the public think more about that. I also, I think that there is something to be said for having a primarily non-white cast. You know, most of the cast members are Asian American, Hispanic American, or African American. There are a few white actors, but most of the actors are not white. I, I, I think the white characters like a, a predominantly play people who are sort of upper crust and often unlikable, like uh, King George is played by a, a white actor. And I definitely think that, you know, I think some a lot of people summed it up as sort of Hamilton is an understandable attempt by non-white Americans to sort of reclaim a his, reclaim a history that they've been largely excluded from because historically when people tell the historical narrative of America minorities have been mostly left out and so Hamilton there's a there's a line in there where Hamilton's wife talks about putting herself back in the narrative and i think that Hamilton the musical is effectively an attempt and a laudable one to put minorities back in the narrative of american history where they belong thus far I've mostly talked about the positive aspects. So now I'm going to go on to the negative aspects. And part of me wants to say that I hope nobody's offended by this. I mean, I, like, I definitely, I don't want to offend anyone with this if I can help it. But I also, I want there to be some controversy and I want to get people thinking. And I think it's good if some people strongly disagree with what I have to say about this because these are conversations that more of us need to be having more often. My most minor criticism. With Hamilton is that the real Alexander Hamilton, you know, the musical kind of portrays him almost like sort of a uh, 
Revolutionary War era version of modern day immigrants' rights activists. The truth is more complicated. Now, Rush Limbaugh, who probably I think it'd be hard to find somebody who has a worse grasp of American history than Rush Limbaugh does. But Rush Limbaugh basically said that Hamilton was like Donald Trump when it came to immigration. He, was, he called him an, immigrate, an immigration hawk. It's interesting, you know, PolitiFact actually looked into this, um, and I've looked into it myself as a historian. And essentially, what it boils down to is that Hamilton's views on immigration were complicated. Uh, he really... He was like Trump in the sense of womanizing and in the sense of actually favoring tariffs uh, because Hamilton, Hamilton's economic vision, I want to kind of talk about this for a minute because the musical portrays Hamilton's economic vision in a very positive manner. Um, I think it's more complicated than that, much more complicated because Hamilton had the idea that what's good for American industry is good for America as a whole. And he wanted the government at the federal level to play a very active role in the economy. And so one of Hamilton's plans was protective tariffs to sort of protect American industry, but, you know, uh, kind of protect it from foreign competition. And I, I, th I actually, tariffs are something that I'm okay with on a moderate level. I, I do think that there should be some incentive for corporations to do business primarily in the United States. So I don't really have a problem with Hamilton on tariffs, but I do have a problem with Hamilton's sort of general program of active government support for American industry, because tariffs, while they were originally intended primarily to benefit American industry and were originally supported by industrialists, nonetheless, tariffs, I think, are beneficial to American workers because they encourage businesses to keep jobs here. Now, with all of that being said, though, Hamilton had a general program of the government actively supporting American industry. And I don't think that's right. I think American businesses need to sink or swim on their own. And I think when you look at stuff like the bailout, and when people talk about banks being too big to fail, that's sort of, that's Hamilton's legacy at work. You can sort of see his fingerprints on that. Because it's this idea that in order for America to succeed, these big businesses have to succeed. I hope I didn't say secede just now. It may have been a Freudian slip because I um, I was thinking about um, how sometimes neo-Confederates falsely, I stress that this is false, but some neo-Confederates will try to claim that tariffs were the cause of Southern secession. That is bollocks, but that is that has been claimed, and I will talk about that probably in a later podcast, but I'm not going to get into that right now. In any case, Hamilton had the idea that in order for America to succeed, to succeed, big business had to succeed. And if big business couldn't succeed on its own, then government had to kind of step in and help it succeed. And, and that's why I think that the bailout is something that Hamilton would have been in favor of. So, and, and I, you know, I believe that businesses have to sink or swim on their own, and I don't think that you know, uh, middle and working class and poor Americans should be having to shell out money to keep businesses afloat that can't stand on their own two feet. But one thing we have to consider is that not all, not all the people who oppose Hamilton's economic vision, but many of them were not operating from kind of a laissez-faire libertarian standpoint. Many of them, as that great line from the song points out, were slaveholders who opposed tariffs because they thought that it hurt their system 
of slavery. So, you know, um, as this libertarian Tim Sandifer once said, if it's between slavery and tariffs, I'll take the tariffs. Unfortunately, Hamilton's record on slavery was not as good by any stretch of the imagination as the musical makes it out to be, but we'll get onto that uh, later on. I'm already getting off on a lot of tangents, but in any case, Hamilton was like Trump when it came to tariffs, and he was like Trump when it came to womanizing, although I'm not aware of Hamilton ever sexually assaulting a woman or being accused of such, so I don't think we can put him on the level of Trump, but there are some similarities. With immigration, it's more complicated because Hamilton did not engage in the extreme xenophobia that some Americans of that era exhibited. On the flip side, he did oppose some of Jefferson's liberal immigration policies that Jefferson liked these liberal immigration policies because the immigrants in question were white and not black. Um, so his racism wasn't at stake. But Hamilton thought that Jefferson was going too far. And he also did sound a little bit Trump-esque, although again, I think he was far less extreme than Trump on this score, and I think the evidence clearly suggests or, or clearly demonstrates that. But Hamilton did sound rather Trump-esque when he tried to claim that in uh, the election of, I, I think uh, it would have been, um, yeah, it would have been 1800, yes. Sorry, the musical messes up the, messes with the election so much that the musical has gotten the elections confused in my mind. But Hamilton sounded rather Trump-esque when he claimed that John Adams might have won re-election in 1800 or Jefferson might not have won if it hadn't been for so many immigrants voting or, or so many non-citizens voting, I believe, was, was his argument. Um, and so, actually, I think he might have, I need to look up the exact quote, but I think he might have been specifically talking about just immigrants in general voting, even immigrants who were natural-born citizens. And so he was trying to sort of say that if only native-born Americans had been voting, then John Adams would have won re-election. And that does sound sort of like Trump's whinging about how if, oh, if all those illegal immigrants hadn't voted, I would have won the popular vote. You know, even my grandmother, you know, I love my grandmother to death, but she voted for Trump. She's a conservative Southern Baptist. And even she said that Trump was acting like a petulant child talking about that. But in any case, Hamilton was less of a across-the-board progressive on immigration than the musical makes him out to be. Another problem that the musical runs into is that, so the, the character Angelica Schuyler, who um, is one of the sisters of Hamilton's wife, Eliza, that he is sort of in a love triangle with, um, and effectively she is portrayed as a feminist, which I think is tr was true, was certainly true in real life. But Hamilton is kind of portrayed as one of the only guys that she feels she can sort of be herself around and that she feels respects her as an intellectual equal. In reality, the truth is significantly more complicated than that because in actuality, when, uh, when Hamilton was engaged in a conflict with Burr, one of the things that he actually criticized was Burr was, you know, Aaron Burr, Hamilton's rival, was actually, for the era, a very strong feminist. And Hamilton thought that that was stupid because Burr was an admirer of some of the early feminists and he gave his daughter a much more advanced education than most girls in that era would have received because he believed that women had much more potential than most men at the time thought. And so Hamilton said that Burr 
was a believer in Godwinism. Now, William Godwin was the husband of one of the early British feminists, Mary Wollstonecraft. I want to make sure I got that name right. And so Hamilton mocked Burr for his feminism by saying that he believed in Godwinism, which was effectively the 1801 equivalent of when an MRA today calls someone a mangina. So a feminist, Alexander Hamilton was not. Now, of course, we come to the issue of slavery. And not only because it has been you know, commonly referred to as one of America's original sins, and I think along with uh, several of our other most longstanding atrocities, I think that slavery is one of America's original sins. And so you see with, you see with this musical that Hamilton is portrayed on multiple occasions as very anti-slavery. The truth, is significantly more com- the truth is significantly more complicated. There is a great article, Alexander Hamilton's Exaggerated Abolitionism, you can find on History News Network. It's by a guy named Philip Magnus. And what you find in there is that Hamilton, on multiple occasions, I'm just going to read you the quote because it really, it just sums it up so well. So Magnus talks about a case in which two of Hamilton's sister-in-laws, including Angelica, who in, in real life was, the evidence suggests, a supporter of slavery. The musical sort of skirts over that. But they uh, these two sister-in-laws wanted to get a slave back because he was under lease to another political acquaintance. And according to Magnus, quote, it is one of many such examples in Hamilton's papers in which he acted as a, in which he, sorry, let me start over, It is one of many such examples in Hamilton's papers in which he acted as a financial agent for the sale, lease, or acquisition of slaves for his immediate family. And I honestly, this is something that prior to this musical, I had tried to research a good bit because I had seen kind of conflicting information about Hamilton and and slavery because many of his biographers and admirers have tried to portray him as anti-slavery as anti-slavery or even as an abolitionist. Now the term abolitionist is not only anachronistic here, but it is highly inaccurate. The term abolitionist from what I've read didn't really come into use until the 19th century anyway. But so um you can't I don't think you can say that somebody was an abolitionist by the standards of the 1700s if they would not have been considered an abolitionist in the mid-1800s, because the term, from everything I've seen, was not used in the 1700s. And if somebody wants to uh, correct me on that, if I'm wrong, I would like to be told that I'm wrong, preferably politely. But in any case, there's really no definition by which Hamilton would be considered an abolitionist. The abolitionists argued that all slaves should be immediately emancipated, Hamilton argued for gradual emancipation, in which slaves would be freed over a lengthy period of time, Um, and and this is what New York and most other northern states effectively adopted. So So most northern states like New York, with the approval of people like Hamilton, would pass laws in which all slaves that were born after a certain date would be free after a certain amount of time. And so the practical impact of this was that slavery frequently continued for decades after it was officially outlawed. And you could certainly argue that this was a step in the right direction. It was certainly preferable to slavery continuing in perpetuity. 
and it was certainly preferable to what was going on in the South, in which slave, no anti-slavery legislation was being passed, and slavery really showed no signs of ending even gradually. Nonetheless, gradual emancipation was harshly and rightfully repudiated by abolitionists such as William Lloyd Garrison and Wendell Phillips and Frederick Douglass and Lydia Maria Child and Sojourner Truth in the 1800s, really starting in the 1830s. And so calling Hamilton an abolitionist really, it, it doesn't make much sense. It, it would be like calling, for example, Leonidas, the Spartan king who died at the Battle of Thermopylae, a feminist because women had more rights in Sparta than in Athens, even though they were still treated very much as second-class citizens. And if someone called Pericles a feminist, I would hope that most historians of the ancient world would point out that 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 the term was completely inappropriate when being applied to them. Nonetheless, I can certainly respect and admire figures in the late 17th, or sorry, late 1700s, early 1800s, and even on into the mid-1800s who advocated gradual emancipation if they had legitimate anti-slavery convictions. I still think immediate emancipation was the right proposal, but I can admire people who advocated gradual emancipation. The problem that we run into with Hamilton is that, as I've just mentioned, he was perfectly willing to be as involved in slavery as one can possibly be without owning slaves. Because if you're talking about buying slaves for relatives or selling them, but you don't own them, that's essentially six to one, half a dozen to the other, in my opinion. And other, I think, in the North in general has been condemned as hypocritical, rightfully so, for being involved in slave trading. And so I, I don't think Hamilton should get away with being labeled anti-slavery despite doing that. And it is worth noting, you know, the musical never mentions that the Schuyler family that he married into was involved in anything nefarious. But in fact, the Schuyler family, as was the case with many prominent New York families in the Revolutionary War era, did own slaves. So, you know, while you can't really blame Hamilton for what his father-in-law did, at a, you know, you do really have to question how anti-slavery someone can possibly be if they're willing to not only marry into a family that has slaves, but help their in-laws partake in the institution. You know, at a certain point, I think that we have to say that Hamilton's anti-slavery label was more symbolic rather than substantive. I mean, we make fun of people, you know, I remember years ago, Al Gore got poked fun at because he was at some event, apparently, and this was right-wing talk radio that somebody I was in the car with was listening to at the time. They, that person, will just say they've since voted for Hillary Clinton, but at the time they listened to a lot of right-wing talk radio. And um, so this may not have been reliable, but one of the hosts was making fun of Al Gore because Al Gore talks a lot about global warming. But at one of his events, there were a bunch of, I think the way I recall it, there's a couple different stories like this that I've heard, but essentially, as I recall it, there were a bunch of SUVs that were left on in the parking lot, which of course isn't really great for the environment and probably does contribute or definitely does contribute to global warming. And so when somebody who is an anti-global warming activist or a self-described anti-global warming activist is driving around in their SUV and leaving it on the parking lot and leaving all the lights on when they don't need to leave them on, I mean and just having a giant carbon footprint, people make fun of them and talk about them being insincere and talk about how they're not real environmentalists. 
so I don't see how we can call Hamilton a real anti-slavery individual. Because, let's be honest, leaving an SUV running in the parking lot is bad, but it's very, very, very small potatoes. It's tiny potatoes. It's minuscule potatoes compared to being a willing participant in the institution of slavery. And the musical in gen and you know, it's funny, actually. Um, so I have talked so far with the assumption that Alexander Hamilton never owned slaves himself. But even this is kind of up in the air. Because Hamilton, one of his own grandsons, who wrote about him, said, quote, It has been stated that Hamilton never owned a Negro slave, but this is untrue. We find that in his books there are entries showing that he purchased them for himself and for others, end quote. And you see entries like that in his papers. You see multiple entries. And this has been papered over by many historians that are sympathetic to Hamilton. But it really, it is something that we can't get away from. And if I ever have, if I'm ever lucky enough to have Lin-Manuel Miranda, Lin-Manuel Miranda on this podcast, then I will tell him what a big fan I am of his work. I'll ask him a lot of softball questions. I'll definitely spend the last portion of the interview just, you know, having fun and um, asking him questions he's happy to answer. But I would, in a very respectful manner, I would challenge him on his depiction of Hamilton as anti-slavery. And I think it's interesting, you know, it actually sort of fits, I think, with a myth that I once believed. So there's this sort of revisionist school of thought that the Federalists, uh, who eventually became the Federalist Party. So the Federalists were largely northern, but as we'll talk about in a minute, also had strong southern presence, had a strong southern presence. The Federalists were, a, were generally believers in a strong central government and tended to support industry over agriculture, tended to support more elitism within white, uh, within different classes of white people. You know, uh, Federalists tended to be less inclined to support voting rights for white people who didn't own property or, uh, you know, uh, couldn't pay taxes, perhaps. And also Federalists tended to prefer Britain to France. And they were the rivals of the Jeffersonians who eventually became the Democratic-Republican Party. <laughs> Boy, is that name confusing now. But the, there's been sort of a revisionist school of thought that the Federalists were primarily anti-slavery and were relatively liberal on race issues for the era. And that's, that's a school of thought that I once was a strong proponent of. I actually wrote a paper in high school where I critiqued the textbook and sort of made, made a pretty strong argument that the Federalists were clearly the anti-slavery party, the anti-slavery faction, and were significantly less racist than the Democratic Republicans. I don't really believe that anymore. Um, I certainly, I have not gotten a more positive view of Thomas Jefferson. And I have not gotten a more, I have certainly not gotten a more positive view of other Jeffersonians like Patrick Henry and George Mason. Those guys were slaveholders who dressed up authoritarian, oppressive views in libertarian rhetoric. I have, however, become much less inclined to view the Federalists as a group as a positive alternative to these types of characters. And I've also, I think, gotten a greater appreciation for the fact that some of the Northern Jeffersonians, some of the Northern Democratic Republicans and Northern Anti-Federalists who oppose the ratification of the Constitution, I've gotten a greater appreciation for the fact that some of these northern anti-federalists, northern Jeffersonians, northern Democratic Republicans did have legitimate anti-slavery convictions. 
And so this musical, I think, sort of falls into the trap of kind of viewing the Federalists as the anti-slavery group. And one of the other manifestations of that is that um, you see George... So Thomas Jefferson rightfully gets called out as a slaveholder and as a hypocrite. But at the same time, George Washington is portrayed as this very heroic figure. He's Hamilton's mentor, his friend, his father figure. Um, and even, even King George III sings his praises. You know, he says something like, next to Washington, they all look small, you know, something like that. But George Washington owned slaves throughout his life. He put provisions in his will for freeing them. But even in the 17, not even into the 1790s, right up until his death, George Washington was actively involved in the institution of slavery and attempted to severely punish slaves who refused to knuckle under to his authority. For example, during his administration, George Washington debased the office of president by trying to essentially have this runaway slave named Oni Judge from his plantation hunted down like a dog when she fled to New Hampshire. Because essentially what had happened was that Oni Judge belonged to Martha Washington. And Oni Judge had, she was subjected to far less manual labor and violence than many slaves were, because that's another thing. George Washington, it's well documented that he had slaves whipped as a punishment. There's no getting around that. You know, you can say that that was typical for the era, but nonetheless, George Washington did whip slaves. And he did try to maintain very harsh discipline. He was not forced into the role of slave owner. He was, he was a role that he willingly took part in. And so, but Oni Judge had a sort of, you could say a less harsh life than most slaves on the Washington plantation and most slaves in general, because she was basically a house slave and she was treated almost like a pet by Martha Washington. Nonetheless, Oni Judge wanted freedom. And she had this hope that when George and Martha died, she would be free. But then Martha Washington said to Oni, probably thinking that she'd be happy about it, but Martha Washington told her that she would be given as a wedding present to Martha Washington's granddaughter. And so Oni Judge realized that if she stuck around, she would never be free. And so she fled to New Hampshire. And so you, you find correspondence from George Washington trying to have Oni Judge track down, basically across the eastern seaboard, so that she can be returned and forced to be a slave in perpetuity. And there's a very revealing line where George Washington talks about how ungrateful Oni Judge is and how she was treated more like a daughter than anything else while he's having her hunted down like an animal. So as much as I love the way that Jefferson gets taken down some pegs in this musical and the way that he gets exposed, there's definitely a double standard with how Washington gets depicted because, you know, again, Washington is portrayed as this very noble figure. And I think that sort of ties in with the myth about the Federalists. Because Washington was never a member of any political party. And he disdained political parties. But his political views overall were certainly much more in line with the Federalists than with what became the Democratic Republicans. And by the 1820s, there's a tendency by Federalists to claim Washington as one of their own. Um, and... You can debate how accurate that is. You could argue that he was a Federalist in everything but name. Um, but in any case, 
you could argue that Miranda is being influenced by the idea of Washington as a Federalist and being influenced by the idea of the Federalists as the more uh, racially enlightened of the two parties. Of course, not every Federalist gets a positive depiction. And that is when we come to the matter of John Adams. Now, of course, John Adams was a Federalist, and he was, during his time in politics, he was one of the key leaders of the Federalist Party. So let's listen to what various characters in the musical who don't agree on much else, including George III, Thomas Jefferson, and Alexander Hamilton, have to say about Mr. Adams. John Adams? I know him. That can't be. That's that little guy who spoke to me all those years ago. What was it? Eighty-five. That poor man, they're going to eat him alive. Yo, every action has its equal opposite reaction. John Adams shat the bed. I love the guy, but he's a traction. So yes, John Adams is effectively the butt monkey of this musical. This is something that I don't do a lot. You won't hear this from me very often, but I actually think this musical was too hard on a founding father. That founding father being, of course, John Adams. And the reason I say that is... Don't get me wrong, John Adams was xenophobic toward immigrants, including probably Hamilton, and the Alien and Sedition Acts that he signed as president were one of the early examples of a long history of the United States government suppressing free speech, which actually his own son, John Quincy Adams, admirably fought as a congressman. And John Adams did little against slavery. When I think about people who played kind of a key role in ending American slavery, I certainly don't think about John Adams. I would actually sooner think about John Quincy Adams, though he was not an abolitionist. Abigail Adams, though she was would not be considered an abolitionist probably either. Uh, I don't really think that John Adams did very much against slavery. In fact, when during the American Revolution, when... Massachusetts in 1778 was considering abolishing slavery, or at least passing gradual emancipation legislation. I can't remember if it was an immediate or a gradual emancipation bill, but John Adams did oppose it because he thought that anything politically controversial could destabilize Massachusetts against Britain. So don't get me wrong, trying to claim John Adams as sort of an 18th century version of William Lloyd Garrison would be crazy. Nevertheless, John Adams was, was certainly of the belief that slavery was wrong. You know, he certainly believed that in the abstract. And unlike Hamilton, he was actually a lot better about living up to that in his personal life. You know, for example, he did not marry into a slaveholding family, even though there were slaveholding families in Massachusetts, certainly at that time. He married Abigail Adams, whose own anti-slavery convictions were certainly even greater than his own. But I want to read you a quote from John Adams. Now, he starts off saying, Every measure of prudence, therefore, ought to be assured for the eventual extirpation of slavery from the United States. Now, granted, many slaveholders, many people who could not be considered anti-slavery in any meaningful sense, would have paid lip service to that idea. 
you don't see a lot of people in the 18th century talking about how they want to see slavery go on forever and how it's a perfect institution. You certainly don't see many founding fathers saying that. But John Adams goes on to kind of talk about what his own record on slavery is in his personal life. And he says, quote, I have through my whole life held the practice of slavery in such abhorrence that I have never owned a Negro or any other slave, though I have lived for many years in times when the practice was not disgraceful, when the best men in my community thought it not inconsistent with their character, and when it has cost me thousands of dollars for the labor and sustenance of my freemen, which I might have saved by the purchase of Negroes at times when they were very cheap. So essentially, John Adams really did avoid using slave labor, at least he, he avoided it as much as he possibly could. I mean, certainly, I'm sure there were times when he visited plantations and was probably waited on by slaves, you know, visiting people like Washington, perhaps, or other Federalists or political allies who were slaveholders, and that was not right on Adams' part. Again, I don't think Adams should be getting any kind of prizes for being some sort of crusader against slavery. Nonetheless, I think it is clear that Adams was significantly better in his personal life about living up to whatever anti-slavery views he may have had than Hamilton was. And I think that that does suggest that Adams' anti-slavery views were significantly more sincere. And so with that in mind, I think portraying Adams throughout the play as sort of this laughingstock who lives in the shadow of guys like Washington and Hamilton is really rather bizarre. And I would actually argue that Adams, again, I don't think he should necessarily get credit, but I think that if we're going to be talking about which founding fathers are sort of the least objectionable, I think Adams would certainly be on the less objectionable list of founding fathers. Um, you know, and again, another thing that Adams and Hamil that Adams was guilty of, that Hamilton was also guilty of, was signing the Constitution. And that's a that's a reason why, again, you know, I don't think that Adams should be getting any prizes. But that's also an example of Hamilton's weaknesses on slavery that the musical doesn't bring up. So the Constitution is portrayed as this great thing, and Burr is portrayed as this coward because he won't endorse the Constitution publicly. He rejects an offer by Hamilton to co-author the Federalist Papers with him. And the Constitution, among other provisions that were favorable to American slavery, had what was called the Fugitive Slave Clause. And it never used the word slave explicitly because they were trying to, the Founding Fathers were essentially being sneaky about it, but they also wanted slaveholders to know that the Constitution protected their peculiar institution so that slaveholders would sign on for it, and also because many of the people at Philadelphia who signed the Constitution were themselves slaveholders and believers in slavery. And the Fugitive Slave Clause essentially stipulated, and it's a Google click away if anyone doesn't believe me, but the Fugitive Slave Clause basically stipulated that, and they use the phrase, as I recall, persons held to service or labor, but I think we all know what that's a euphemism for, that persons held to service or labor if they flee from one state to another state, they can't become free even if they would normally be free under those state laws. And what that did was it stipulated that slaves who fled from places like Virginia or South Carolina to a state like Vermont or Pennsylvania or Massachusetts would not be free whatever those states, those free states, would have preferred. 
And George Washington, as president, partly for his own selfish reasons, as we've talked about earlier, signed legislation for enforcing that provision of the Constitution. And, of course, the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850 that made it far harder for slaves to flee up north and required more of them to escape all the way to Canada. That Fugitive Slave Act was another piece of legislation that was passed for the purposes of enforcing the Constitution's Fugitive Slave Clause. And lest anyone think that I am taking the Founding Fathers out of context, we have correspondence from James Madison in which he himself brags to pro-slavery Americans whom he wants to enlist to support the Constitution that the Constitution gives slaveholders protections for their property that had not been in place before. So literally, one of the, one of the most pivotal figures in the Constitution bragged about how the document supported slavery, so portraying it as kind of this wonderful document that Hamilton was right to champion and that Burr was a coward for not signing on to is really ahistorical. And I would actually go so far as to say, you know, there's the line where um, Burr says, you know, some Burr says about how the Constitution's a mess and Hamilton says, well, it needs amendments or something. You know, I'm paraphrasing there. Um, but the thing about it, of course, is that it took almost 80 years for any anti-slavery amendments to be passed. And so that's 80 years in which millions of black people are being kept in chains. And there were millions of black people who were alive when the Constitution was drafted, who never saw freedom because they didn't survive to see the 13th Amendment. Hell, there were plenty of slaves who were born after the Constitution that lived their entire lives as slaves and died before the 13th Amendment was passed and ratified. So there's really, I mean, I'm just going to say it, in my opinion, the Northern Anti-Federalists, there were a few of them in places like Massachusetts, who said that they would not sign on for the Constitution partly because it protected slavery. And there was a Quaker schoolteacher in Philadelphia I can't remember what grade level he taught. Maybe school teacher only applies to elementary school students. He may have been a college professor. But there was a Quaker teacher in Philadelphia named Benjamin Workman who talked about how he would not sign on to a document that would allow the U.S. government to put down slave revolts because he correctly anticipated that would be one of the purposes that the military would be put to that would fall under the rubric of common defense. And Workman actually said, in the 1780s, that he would prefer to see the slave rebels win. That's the kind of 18th century Americans that I really look up to. That's just me. It is a great musical. Nonetheless, it has a lot of flaws. I did want to mention one other positive thing about it. Um, it is very good, or I shouldn't say very good. It is decent from an LGBT rights standpoint. Because there has been a widespread theory that Alexander Hamilton was involved in a same-sex relationship or was at least attracted to John Lawrence, who was a South Carolinian who became an officer in the Continental Army and actually commanded a black regiment because he wanted to, um, he wanted to try to strike a blow against slavery, and he thought that by having black people fight in the revolution that it would kind of undermine the institution. And I don't think he was very successful, but uh, Lawrence's goals from everything I've read were certainly noble. You know, he was very sincere. And there's been a lot of speculation that he and Hamilton, who were close friends, also may have been lovers. And the musical sort of hints around at that. Like there's a line where Hamilton says, Lawrence, I like you a lot. 
And it's never explicitly stated, but Lin-Manuel Miranda has said that he envisioned the character of Hamilton as bisexual. And so I think it's cool, you know, that they go with that theory, that they kind of run with it a little bit. I would have liked to have seen it be a little bit more explicit. Um, you know, I mean, they dropped the F-bomb a couple times, so I, I don't think they should have been too worried about how people would react to gay content in there. Um, but they may have wanted to focus on his relationship with Eliza and Angelica. Nevertheless, I think they should have been a little bit more explicit, but it is still good from an LGBT rights standpoint that Lin-Manuel Miranda envisioned the character as bisexual. And so overall, you know, I give it a very positive review. I think that the way it handles issues of race is problematic. You know, I think that, um, even though, like I said, that the intentions are good, because I think it does, at the end of the day, heavily sanitize the Founding Fathers and their legacy. And one of the points of criticism that I've heard some people bring up that I think is also reasonable that I haven't really touched on is that you have a predominantly non-white cast, but there are no prominent non-white historical figures that appear in this musical. And I think that that is a shame, you know, and I think that kind of goes with the whole thing about it's like they are, they're reclaiming the narrative. They're, you know, they're putting non-white people back in the narrative, but they're also kind of doing it in a way that doesn't fully acknowledge the history of non-white Americans in this country. And again, you know, I think the intentions were nothing but good. I think they did a good job overall, but I think that these are legitimate criticisms that do need to be made of the musical. And I think this is something that's going to be more jarring if they make a movie out of it. Um, because the thing about Hamilton is it works really well as a stage show, but I think if you made a movie out of it, you would kind of run into a problem where I think it would be very jarring for people to see, for example, Southern slaveholders like Jefferson and Madison and Washington played by black actors because they were white supremacists who owned slaves in real life. Um, and so I think... You know, I'm definitely not that type of person who gets upset about a black person playing a white character. Lord knows we've seen far too much of the reverse in which white actors play black characters. But I do think it would be jarring in a movie. And I think this the general thing about seeing a movie where the Founding Fathers are depicted as rapping and is depi are depicted as predominantly non-white. I think that that would be somehow more confusing in a movie-type setting, and I think it's probably better for this uh, musical to stay on stage. Um, because honestly, it's something, you know, I would actually liken the musical, and this is going to sound very weird, but I would liken the musical to a certain show that um, I think many of you have seen it. It was a very popular animated show, and it is called The Flintstones. And the reason that I see it as being a little bit like The Flintstones, just hear me out on this, is that if you think much about the setting of the Flintstones, it makes zero sense. Because you have, not only do you have humans and dinosaurs living together, which is a common error, but you also have cavemen and dinosaurs alongside cars, television, etc. And then it gets even weirder when they, there was a Flintstones movie they did one time where they were celebrating Christmas and putting on a stage show of, the, of a Christmas carol. Try to figure that one out. Um, so there is sort of that thing going on in Hamilton where it's like, okay, this setting, if I think too much about it, it doesn't really make much sense, but it's just so good that it all works. And that's the thing with the Flintstones. The Flintstones was such a great show in spite of the setting because it was so funny and the characters were so entertaining 
And of course, Hamilton is much, uh, much weightier cultural fare and much more well done and had a lot more work put into it than the Flintstones. Don't get me wrong. You know, I'm not saying that Hamilton is the theater equivalent of the Flintstones. Although the Flintstones, I mean, they, they had a lot of work put into that too. Nonetheless, the Flintstones is not on par with Hamilton. I just think it is comparable in the sense that I just mentioned. And, you know, kind of going back to, I know I'm rambling here, but there's just so much I want to say. Um, but kind of going back to this point I made earlier, um, I do hope it'll get more Americans interested in history. And it kind of made me think about whether or not some of the movies or stage musicals that I thought would be cool about historical figures, but that I thought would never be successful. It's made me think about whether or not those stage shows or those movies might actually be more successful than I thought. You know, it's funny, there's this historical figure, Wendell Phillips, that's my favorite figure from American history or from history in general. And he was a white abolitionist from Boston who came from a very wealthy family. Instead of sort of settling into life as sort of a member of society's elite, he became a radical abolitionist. Radical abolitionist, he was a very strong defender of racial equality, including interracial marriage. He was a defender of Native Americans' rights, women's suffrage, abolition of the death penalty. And he also, there's a very, he's a very interesting character because his family was so disgusted with his radicalism that they tried to have him committed to an asylum. He was influenced in his beliefs largely by his wife, but at the same time, she was in very poor health. So she was confined to the home, for, to their house for most of the marriage, and Phillips had to spend a lot of time taking care of her. And he essentially ended up broke despite being very wealthy because he gave so much of his money away. And it's actually a great contrast to Jefferson because uh, when you look at Jefferson, Jefferson had a massive fortune and essentially pissed it away by spending profligately and forcing his slaves to sort of bear the cost of that. Um, and so I think, you know, Wendell Phillips' movie could be very interesting. As a side note, Phillips apparently, when he was a young man, met a geriatric Aaron Burr shortly before Burr died in 1836. And so part of me thinks, you know, that you could do a really interesting movie or musical about Phillips, and part of me thinks that the Hamilton stage musical has sort of uh, kind of opened the door for that. At the same time, I think... A Wendell Phillips adaptation is probably not going to happen anytime soon for two reasons. I think, number one, you know, they say lightning never strikes in the same place twice. Uh, I think the success of Hamilton would probably be very difficult to duplicate. Um, I think, you know, it's sort of, you know, it's sort of like how with Lord of the Rings, there were so many knockoffs with Lord of the Rings and so few of them have become successful. Um, and then you also have the issue that there's never been really a right time for a Wendell Phillips film. Because in the 19, say in the 1950s, you know, that would have been a great time for a film with Wendell Phillips, say, for example, starring Spencer Tracy, maybe as an older Wendell Phillips. But the problem you ran into in the 50s is that it would have been really hard for studios to greenlight a film about someone who was so radical on race. You know, um, the majority of Americans still viewed abolitionists as fanatics and race mixers. And that was kind of, that was how most textbooks, or at least many textbooks and many historians depicted them. So you certainly couldn't have done a movie, certainly could not have done a Wendell Phillips movie in the 1950s. Nowadays you have the issue of, so not only, you've still got a lot of people who view abolitionists the same way that people 60, 70, 80 years ago viewed them. 
but enough people, I think, admire The Abolitionist that that would probably not be an insurmountable barrier to doing a movie about one of them. But I think the problem is now that you've seen such a proliferation of the infamous white savior movies that I think any attempt to do a movie about Wendell Phillips, where he was portrayed in a positive light, which I think is what he deserves, would probably be labeled as just another white savior film. Um, and that's unfortunate because I think, I don't think any film about a white person who stands up for civil rights is a bad film. I think we've seen sort of a glut of white savior movies and not enough movies about black people doing sort of setting the world on fire, so to speak, metaphorically, obviously. Um, now I do. So I think that there probably won't be a right time for Wendell Phillips film, at least for a long time. I think a Bayard Rustin film or a Bayard Rustin stage adaptation could be more successful. Again, I don't know because it just seems like it would be more sort of, it could come across as more radical and more sort of unsettling than a Hamilton musical did. But Overall, like I said, overall, I love the musical Lin-Manuel Miranda. If you're listening to this, I hope there are no hard feelings. I got much love for you. I got nothing but respect for you. I love your work. But I want to close out with a quote from George Carlin of Thomas the Tank Engine fame that kind of sums up the problem I have with the Founding Fathers. Of course, the country is founded on the double standard. That's our history. We were founded on a very basic double standard. This country was founded by slave owners who wanted to be free. Am I right?